The reading for today is from Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 32. And you can find that on page 53 of the uh, Luke's gospel booklets. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your, your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Luke chapter 15 and... Perhaps one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told. Now, I don't know what your view of God is, but one author suggests that this story challenges what nearly everyone has ever thought about God. Because this story tells us that God is for us and wants us. And there are plenty of people who don't think that way about God. I think of a young mum I talked to a few years back. Let's call her Phoebe. She contacted me about having her baby baptised. And as we talked about Jesus, with tears in her eyes, she said to me, I've tried to be good. I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments, but I just can't do it. I'm never going to be good enough for God. I think of a guy I got chatting to on the train. Uh, he was in insurance, I think. I'll call him Darren. After I asked him what he did for a living, he asked me the same question. I told him I was a vicar. And Darren said to me, if you knew the stuff I'd done, you wouldn't waste your breath talking to me. I'm too far gone for God. 
I think of a postgrad student, we'll call her Amy. I met her when I was speaking at a student mission. She was doing a PhD on something that was way over my head. She talked to me after I'd spoken at a lunchtime event, and she explained I was brought up to go to church every week, but I only went because my parents told me to. So when I came to uni, I, I felt free. It was as if the shackles were off at last. And for four years, I tried every experience on offer. But to be honest, I feel there's something missing. And so in these last months, I've often thought about God. And then she said this, but there's no way he'd have me back after all the stuff I've done. Well, look, this story is for Phoebe and Darren and Amy and for anyone else who thinks that God wouldn't want them. Because this story turns completely upside down what they and countless others think about God. This story says, whoever you are and whatever you've done, God wants you back. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus told this story when a, a group of religious people disapproved of the company that Jesus was keeping. Look back with me to verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, Jesus, receives, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Two groups of people. Do you remember last week? We'll call them this week the sinners and the saints. Jesus was hanging out with the sinners, tax collectors, rogue traders, dodgy dealers, prostitutes. The saints, and please hear the irony as I describe them as that, the saints, the Pharisees, and the scribes were furious that Jesus was friends with such intolerable low life. So there they were, sinners and saints. And then Jesus told this story about two sons, verse 11, the, the story that Angus has just read for us. So it's not difficult to work out that the two sons in the story represent these two groups, sinners and saints. Next week, we'll look at the older son. This week, we'll focus on the younger son. And the first point on the handout, if you're still following along, the self-indulgent, wasteful son. The younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners in verse 1. He's the sort who believes that the meaning of life is not going to be found in organized religion. At the sort who might even see bigoted religious people as part of the problem with life. On many occasions, people have enjoyed pointing out to me that religion has been the cause of much misery in the world. So these people might consider themselves the progressives, part of the solution to a better world. They might even describe themselves as spiritual, but they, they certainly wouldn't have anything to do with organized religion. That's the younger son. And at the beginning of the story, he wants to cut loose. Verse 11, there was a man, says Jesus, who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Here is the younger son, and he is very rude. Now, rude is not nearly strong enough, but it begins with R, and so it fits neatly with the next two points on the handout. But as we read on, we'll see that he really was much worse than rude. Picture him standing there with his dad on the veranda of their enormous mansion on a pleasant summer's evening, with each with a gin and tonic in their hands. And as they look over the acres of perfectly manicured gardens, in verse 12, it's as if he says, Dad, you've told me and my brother many times that one day all this will be ours. Well, look, I don't want to wait for one day. I want my share now. And his dad gently explains, well, son, I'd love to give it to you now, but this is your inheritance. All this becomes yours when I die. And his son replies, yes, Dad, you've got the point. Dad, I'd like it now because, Dad, I wish you were dead. You see why calling him rude really isn't strong enough. He's selfish and spiteful. He's 
hurtful and nasty. But sadly, this is the sort of thing that goes on in families. In short, he's saying here, Dad, I want your things, but I don't want you. And that is the way a lot of people treat God, wanting all the good gifts God gives, food, fun, friendship, love, laughter, luxuries, sun, sex, sport. That was me when I was 20. I didn't deny God's existence, but I didn't want him running my life. Like the younger son, I wanted all the good things that the father has, but I didn't want the father. It's summed up in just two words there in verse 12. Give me. Do you see it, Father? Give me. Some of, us, some of us may be able to see something of ourselves in the younger son. All of us can surely see how this must have hurt the father. I mean deeply hurt the father. Listen to the successful city worker talking about his wayward son. We gave him so much when he was growing up. A good education, great family holidays, a comfortable home. He always had the latest iPhone and designer clothes. He never wanted for anything, but he wants nothing to do with us now. We hardly ever hear from him. When he does make contact, contact, which isn't very often, it's only because he wants something, and he's so rude. He has said some really hurtful things to his mother and me. I don't know what's gotten into him. That's what's going on here. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And it's just not right. Not right to treat other people like that, and it's certainly not right to treat God like that. But that is what the son is doing. Give me, verse 12, give me so that I can go and do my own thing. And so in one devastating conversation, the relationship was ended. And as he walked down the drive on that family, of the family home with his share of the inheritance now, a great wad of uh, money in his back pocket, he would have felt a million dollars. He's cutting loose. He's getting as far away from his father as he can. He's going to live it up to the full. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So after being rude to his dad, next he was reckless, squandering his inheritance on reckless living. No more having to be in my midnight, no more stupid rules and regulations, no more having to answer to anyone. As he walks down the driveway, he is free and he is going to go for it. The actor Bruce Willis has been in the news in this last week or so. Perhaps he's most uh, famous for his roles in the Die Hard movies. Last week, sadly, his family announced that he's been diagnosed with a form of dementia. Now listen to what Bruce Willis said in a Sunday Times magazine interview a few years back. In 1976-77, I almost lost my brother in a car accident, and I almost lost my sister to Hodgkin's disease, both within weeks of each other. Then I had a friend from college who moved to New York and got killed in a freak accident when his taxi got sideswiped, jumped the curb, took him, took him out in a second, dead. So early on in life, I really had a strong awareness of how quickly life can be taken away. We have no choice about who our parents are or what genes we're going to get or how long we're going to live or the circumstances of our life or death. The only thing we do have, says Willis, is to try and be alive in the moment. Don't take life for granted. Live it up. That's what this son is doing. He's a young buck wanting to experience every previously forbidden fruit, wine, women, song, booze, broads, and bebop. I've met a number of people like him wanting a sense of freedom, not wanting anything to do with a God who restricts them. As one guy put it, God's always telling me what I can't do. You know, thou shalt not do this, that, and the other. 
It's that unbelief that God's out to ruin life, take all the the fun out of life, cramp my style, which incidentally has never been a problem for me because I've never had any style. Anyway, that's the younger son. Now he's cut loose and he's got his freedom. And end of verse 13, he's going to make the most of it in reckless living. He's getting what many young men dream about, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, having a blast while it lasts. The problem is it doesn't last. Not for him. The money dried up. He squandered his wealth. And just when he was skint, the country was plunged into recession. Verse 14, when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Confidence in the city was at rock bottom. Inflation was out of control. People were being fired and not hired. And so this young lad was alone and in need. And so, verse 15, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. These were hard times, and it wasn't easy in the labor market, so he took the only job available, feeding pigs. Now, look, feeding pigs is a pretty mucky business at the best of times. And while we might argue that it is a job and he could have done worse, be sure the first hearers of this story wouldn't have thought like that. The Pharisees and the scribes of verse 2 would have been disgusted. They were Jewish and wouldn't have anything to do with pigs. So to hire yourself out to do that kind of work was in every sense to live in a pigsty. This week, I've been been trying to think what would have the same shock value for us as pig feeding had for a Jewish audience. Is it the person who's willing to work for a paedophile ring running a child pornography website? Or is it the young woman who turns to prostitution? And for those of you with daughters, just think about how you'd feel if your daughter became a hooker. Then you might get the sense of the abhorrence of the Pharisees when Jesus told them about this boy feeding pigs. It was disgusting, degrading, demeaning. So I doubt they had much sympathy for him when Jesus told them in verse 16 that he was hungry and lonely. So hungry he wanted to eat the pig food and so lonely, end of verse 16, no one gave him anything. Doesn't have a friend in the world. Once the money was gone, the friends were gone too. Funny how that happens, isn't it? So there he is, hungry, lonely, and working in a pigsty. But it brought him to his senses. Verse 17, when he came to himself, could be translated when he came to his senses. It seems that some people have to live the wild life for them to discover that the independent life, independent of God, really isn't all it's cracked up to be, really doesn't deliver, not deep down. Some years ago, I worked uh, with uh, the homeless in New York City, And while I was there, I met a guy called Big James. He was big and his name was James, so they called him Big James. He'd been very successful as a session musician, played on a string of fabulously successful albums, but drugs got a hold. He lost his job, sold everything to feed his habit, lost his swanky New York apartment and ended up on the streets. And he told me his story and he said to me, Paul, I went about as low as I could go and then I fell further. What started out as such fun was killing me. That's what's happening here. This son, end of verse 17, was perishing with hunger. I'm starving to death. Living the high life independent of God was literally killing him. For him, it was starvation. For others, it's cirrhosis of the liver or an overdose or a sexually transmitted disease. Or, well, you know, you get the point. One way and another, this story points towards the destructiveness of self-centered living. Living to please ourselves might seem so attractive, so freeing. 
but it's degrading and destructive and ultimately devastatingly disastrous. That's what this young man came to see. So he came to his senses, saw the mess he'd made of life and remembered what he left behind. He thought of home where, he hired, where the hired servants were better off than him. Do you see it there in verse 17? And so he did something that is very difficult to do. He swallowed his pride and he repented. He says, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say sorry. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. My wife, Caroline, and I used to run a marriage course, and we told couples who were preparing for marriage that there were two phrases they needed to learn to say to each other. The first is, I'm sorry I, I was wrong, and the second is, that's okay, I love you. I'm sorry I was wrong, that's okay, I love you. Now, put like that, it doesn't seem so difficult, but we all know how those words stick in our throat. It's so hard to admit that we're wrong. But that is exactly how the Christian life begins, admitting that living a life independent of God is all wrong and then turning back to him. That's repentance. And so here he is rehearsing what he's going to say when he gets home. Can you picture him pacing up and down the pigsty in verses 18 and 19, rehearsing his little speech? Dad, I'm sorry I've sinned against you. And then he headed for home, verse 20. And as he does, we come to the very heart of the story. See, so far the story's been all about the younger son. Now the father is center stage. And the second point, if you're still following on the handout, the selfless, generous father. Before we go any further, if the father in, in the story represents God, let me ask you, how do you think the father will respond? Of course, many of you have heard the story before and you know exactly how the father responds. But no matter how many times we've read it before, when we stop and think about it, the father's response should absolutely blow us away. Because the father's response is so utterly different to the way we respond and so completely different to the way the world would respond. It's certainly different to the way Phoebe and Darren and Amy thought God would respond to them. And having seen how rude and reckless the son is, the response of the father is nothing short of spectacular. The younger son is on his way home, but while he's still a long way off, he gets the most fabulous welcome. Verse 20, he arose and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father runs. And I'm told that a father running in that culture, in that culture was most undignified, but he doesn't care what people think. The first sight of his son and he's moved with compassion, verse 20, and he runs as fast as he can, arms open wide, and then when he reaches his son, he smothers his son with hugs and kisses. It's an amazing response. And I think it's especially amazing when you consider what doesn't happen. We don't see the father standing on the porch, arms crossed, face like a bulldog chewing a wasp, saying, this better be good. And he doesn't stand there grumbling to his wife, the cheek of it. Does he really think we're going to have him back after the way he's treated us? And the father isn't reveling in his chance for revenge. Oh, I've been waiting for this day for a long time. I'm going to give that boy hell after all the heartache he's put us through. And he doesn't rub his nose in it by saying, I told you so, but you wouldn't listen. And he doesn't lament all the wealth his son has blown, you selfish little... You've blown the family fortune on booze and tramps. No, there's absolutely none of that. 
The father's been waiting for this day for so long, not so that he can tear him off a strip, but so that he can welcome him home. And I love verse 21. The son starts his rehearsed speech, the rehearsed speech that we saw in verses 18 and 19, but he only gets halfway through it. The son says, I'm sorry I was wrong, but before he's able to finish the the speech, the father says, that's okay, I love you. Now let me ask you, is this anything like your picture of God? Here is why one author says this parable challenges what nearly everyone has ever thought about God. Isn't this amazing? Whoever you are and whatever you've done, the one true God would not only have you back, he is dying to welcome you back. And more than that, he wants to restore you. See, the son knows, verse 19, that he doesn't deserve to be called a son or treated as a son. He's ready to be a hired hand. I'll learn a trade. I'll earn a wage. I'll begin to pay off my debt. But verse 22, the father instantly treats him like a son, saying to his servants, bring the robe, a sign of honor. Put a ring on his finger, the father's guarantee. Put sandals on his feet, the feet that have been stomping around in pig poo. The son is completely accepted, fully restored, instantly treated as family. He doesn't have to do a thing to earn his way back, nothing. This is what the Bible calls grace. God giving us good things we don't deserve. And God's grace is so extravagant and so different from the way the world treats us. God's love is unconditional. Sadly, many people have never experienced unconditional love. In London, it seems we're loved if we're successful and beautiful or wealthy. Love is conditional. For some of you, all your lives, you've had to earn love and acceptance. You, You were loved at school if you made the grade or played for the first team. Even at home, you're only loved if you achieve in your career or produce the grandchildren your parents want. There is nothing of that here. Out of extraordinary love, the father instantly restores his son. And the father is so pleased to have him home, he rejoices, celebrates by throwing a party, verse 23. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Killing the fattened calf was the most extravagant gesture. This was one party. It's what we saw in in the story last week, the story of the lost sheep. Do you remember verse 6? When the good shepherd found the sheep, he brought it home, verse 6. He calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have my sheep that was lost. And verse 7, there will be such joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Can you believe it? Heaven rejoices. Heaven throws a party when people turn back to God. That is how much you matter. Now, look, I wonder if you've grasped this about the Father. He doesn't treat us as we deserve. His love and forgiveness is extraordinary. So extraordinary that he can pardon and restore any and every sin or wrongdoing. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You might have deliberately hurt people and caused them untold misery by your selfish actions, like the tax collectors of verse 1, fleecing others to line their own pockets. You might have brought shame on your family and abused yourself like the prostitutes in verse 1. Whatever you've done, there is no evil that the Father's love cannot cover. There is no sin that is not a match for his grace. 
And please see that the Father's love comes before the Son has a chance to clean up his life. The Son doesn't do anything to earn his way back. Yes, in this story, the Son repented, and repentance is the way back to the Father. But before Jesus told this story, he told the story of the lost sheep that we looked at last week. And in that story, it is very clear that the good shepherd went looking for the sheep before the sheep went looking for the shepherd. That's the big message of the Bible. God made the first move. Jesus came down to earth to find us, and he went to the most extraordinary lengths to find us. He went as far as dying on a cross, dying so we could be forgiven. He did that before we did anything. God makes the first move. So as we close, how will we respond to that love? Well, first a word to those who know they are away from God. Please know that the Father can't wait for you to come back. Please know that he'll accept you unconditionally. There is no probationary period, no exam you have to pass. The moment you genuinely return to the Father, you're accepted into the family. It is the most brilliant news to hear if you're like this son or if you're like Phoebe or Darren or Amy. May I ask you gently, why wouldn't you come back to God today? And if you want to do that, tell the friend you've come with. They'll be thrilled to tell you how you can do that or speak to me afterwards or somebody else on the team. And then second, as we close, a word for those who, would, who already know this about the Father. Let me ask you, as I've asked myself this week, do we really believe this about God? I mean, really believe the Father is like this when it comes to how we relate to others. Do we embrace people as the Father does? Do we create in the church an environment where prodigals, as we call them, feel welcome, indeed are welcome? More than that, where they're treated like family, like royalty. See, as I look around at our churches, if they have anyone in them at all, they seem to be populated by respectable moralists, but read the Gospels and you'll see Jesus attracted the disreputable outcasts. It's a challenge. And this has challenged me right down to my boots because so often when I look at people, I think they wouldn't want to hear about Jesus. They'd never become a Christian. And maybe deep down what I'm actually saying is God would never have them back. But God is for everyone. The Father wants everyone we meet every day to turn back to him. You see, this story shatters our categories about God, about who's acceptable to God, and about who might or might not become God's. And next week, we'll look at the older brother at the end of the story. But now let me lead us in a prayer. Now, Father, we, we thank you that you are the most extraordinarily loving and accepting and gracious God. We thank you that there is none like you. We thank you that many of us in this room have experienced that extraordinary, extravagant grace. And we pray for those who haven't yet, that even today they might run back to you and feel your welcome and your embrace. In Jesus' name, amen.